Amen. All right. How many fathers do we have? All right. Happy Father's Day in advance. Praise the Lord. Well, I thought I'd teach this morning on uh, men, because it's a men's breakfast. That kind of makes sense, right? And um, I just thought we'd take a look at the life of Abraham and just draw out a couple points. And this isn't meant to be something in-depth or anything. It's kind of kind of an overview. But um, when you think of real men, the world has a totally different image of what it means to be a man than what the Bible tells us. And if you examine the lives of, of the righteous men in Scripture, especially through the Old Testament and even the New, there's one characteristic really that quickly comes to the top. Um, they all walked with God. They all walked with God. They walked with God in sweet communion with Him. They walked with Him in, in, in sincere commitment. And the patterns of their lives, as you study these men, really matched uh, the passions of their hearts. Um, they wanted to know the Lord more, and they wanted to obey the Lord more. And that's something unfortunate that has fallen short in many churches today. It's all about the hoopla and the entertainment and, you know, getting them back the next week so you've got to have a bigger, better show. Um, but when you look at Scripture, you have men like Enoch. They walked with God in private devotion and intimate fellowship in Genesis 5. You have men like Noah uh, who walked with God in the public displays of, of righteousness through his life. Even when the, the culture around him, and this is a good lesson for us, was totally corrupt as we saw in Genesis, as we can see in Genesis 6, or even like Abraham, we'll look this morning, who walked with God in their personal decisions. Even when God called them to believe uh, something that was seemingly impossible. Genesis 17. But the priority of their lives was really to honor the Lord in everything they did, and they acted accordingly. And I think we need to draw a truth out of that. These faithful men also called others to walk with God as well. It wasn't just them walking all by themselves. You look at Moses and Joshua, for example, they repeatedly reminded the nation of Israel to walk in his ways. Over and over and over again, the Lord promised his people if they would walk with him, what? He would likewise walk with them. And that's such an important biblical principle to understand. And he told them in Leviticus 26, verse 3 and 12, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be what? My people. Yet, only a few generations later, <laughs> what happens? The people turn, the people walk away from God, and you can read it in Judges. We've been through Judges. In Judges chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. We have a whole generation of young people that we need to model faith for. And from the time of Judges to the Babylonian captivity, really, you have these seasons of national disobedience. 
And it's this weird cycle, you know, they, 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 they disobey, God chastises them through divine chastisement, they repent, God raises them up a leader, and then the whole thing, re, it just plagues Israel over and over. It's nauseating to read sometimes. As we went through the judges, we saw that. And there were still some amongst them who walked with God. Leaders like David, 1 Kings 3, or Hezekiah, 2 Kings 20, Josiah, 2 Kings 22. But many of the nation's leaders and rulers walked in paths of what the Old Testament describes as idolatry and also immorality. And that's one thing that plagues, I think, men today. We like our toys, and we like sometimes what our eyes see that we shouldn't look at. (laughs) Even though the prophets continually called them, walk in the light of the Lord, walk in the light of the Lord, over and over and over, the people didn't listen. They just didn't listen. It was like they were deaf. And as a result, you know history, what happened, both the the northern and the southern kingdoms, what happened? Eventually they fell. They fell to their enemies. King David, in particular, had known the, the critical importance of and unimaginable joy of walking with God. He wasn't perfect, but he walked with God. He charged his his son Solomon to do the same. And Solomon, at least at first, as many of them do, right, they seem eager. Uh, They want to do everything to heed their father's instructions, and they do that. And you look at the book of Psalms, you look at the book of Proverbs, and it's filled with what? It's filled with encouragement for us to walk in God's ways time and time again. Psalm 81, verse 13, it says, Oh, that my people would listen to me and that Israel would walk in my ways. And men who walk with the Lord do so in integrity. I put your, we're not going to go through all these verses, but I just put this, this in your thing. You can study this later. They walked with the Lord in integrity. They walked blamelessly. They walked according to God's commands. They don't follow the paths of the wicked, but they walk in the uprightness. They walk in wisdom. And as a result, what happens? They receive the blessing of God on their lives. This isn't rocket science. God says, if you just read my word and apply it and obey it, I will bless you. And yet so many times our lives are in disarray and we sit there scratching our head. I don't know why God's doing this to me. Solomon wrote in Proverbs eleven twenty, the perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord. That's strong language. There's no gray area there. They're an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. I pray you want in your heart of hearts today to be a delight to the God who saved you, not an abomination in our practice. And when we look at the New Testament, we see the same thing. And you can continue through here. It says, believers must not walk according to the flesh, Romans 8. They must not walk according to their formal way of life, Ephesians 4. Rather, how are we to walk? We're to walk what? In the Spirit, Galatians 5. In the newness of life, in love, Ephesians 5. In good works, Ephesians 2. In truth, 2 John 4. In a manner that's what? Worthy of God. Worthy of the Lord, Colossians 1. We're to walk by faith as children of light, as wise men, according to the commandments 
of God. Ultimately, we're to walk as who? Christ. We're to walk as Christ himself walked. There's no way possible that we can do that. That is an impossibility for any human to do. It's only through the power of the Spirit, through the Word of God, through the church that God provides for us, that we are able to complete that task. And the moment we try to do it on our own as an island, or just on our own power, we fail miserably time and time again. But it says we're also to run this race of faith, Hebrews 12, and they have to keep their eyes on who? On Christ. Don't allow your eyes to be turned away from Christ. I get it. It's hard today to live in this world. You've got a lot of distractions. You've got a lot of things going on, whether it's politics, whether it's finances, whether it's family relationships, kids, whatever it might be. There's so much to distract us from the Lord. But we are to keep our eyes on Christ. And they can also find encouragement by looking at the faithful examples that were provided in Roman, or Hebrews 11. Right? We look at all the faithful examples that God has provided for us for, for men who walk by faith, who live by faith. And like believers in Bible times, Christian men today are called to walk, first of all, in obedience. We're called to walk in truth. And we're called to walk in godliness. Those aren't options for the believer. You can't tell God, well, sorry, you know, I'm a, I'm a new Christian. I can't really do that. No, he, you have the same Holy Spirit than any one of us has, who's been believers for a long time. We have the same word of God. Um, nothing in our world makes that easy. I'm not up here saying, oh, it's just it's very simple to do. It's very difficult. We fail in a myriad of ways, probably daily. And the culture isn't helping. It's only getting worse. The church, in many cases, unfortunately, has become very shallow. It's become very weak. It's compromised the gospel. It will not teach God's truth. It's about entertainment, filling the pews. It's overly focused on evangelism on Sundays. Many churches are. It's not that we don't evangelize on Sundays. We want people to come to Christ, but that's not the sole purpose of our meeting on a Sundays. The Bible says the New Testament church meant to edify the saints. So we, we have to be aware of these things. And those who stand for purity and those who stand especially for purity of doctrine and truth are often put down as unloving or out of touch. You know, they often, don't you want to relate to the, the, the people of this generation and, and this culture? No. I, I, I want to be able to share with them the truth of the Word of God in a way that affects their life. And that temptation to compromise is great, I'm sure, for every one of us. And it never stops. You never complete this cycle. It's, it's not like you just finally reach the day when you, you, you just skate above it all, right? And you're, just, you're happy in Jesus the rest of your life till the Lord takes you home. No, it's a daily struggle. And as men, we, we know what that's like. It doesn't matter whether you're right, watching a sporting event or driving down the freeway and you ca your eye catches a billboard. The temptation is, is all around us. But God is looking for those who will, what? will remain, remain faithful. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, it says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And I want to ask you this morning, is your heart completely his? 
Or is it divided? Do you have other things going on in your heart? And the actions of, of godly men are not dictated by their peers. We don't give in to peer pressure. We're not dictated, our actions of godly men are not dictated by uh, mere public opinion. Well, you can't say that to somebody. You know, you, you can't go out there and share with someone they're on their way to hell. That's just, that's not correct. No, where, where do they come? They come from a deep personal character. They come from a deep conviction. The kind that is forged over years of walking with the Lord in intimate fellowship and submissive obedience. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And it's always encouraging to do a study of these Old Testament saints like Abraham and Daniel and even the New Testament Paul who honored the Lord through some very, 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 a lot more difficult times than we would ever think of having. They honored the Lord through their faithfulness to him. No matter what came down, no matter what happened, they were faithful to him. And we're reminded of the standard of which God has called us to as one who desires to obey his word. And so I pray today you'll be challenged to stand firm, to exhort to live righteously, to be refreshed in God's truth and be comforted by his grace. And through it all, though, we see this recurring theme. It's, it's, it's been the theme throughout the entire Bible. It's a theme of every godly man's life. And the theme is simply this. It, it should be the theme of, of us as well, that real men walk with God. Real men walk with God. They don't walk with the cloud, the crowd. They walk with God. And the key to becoming a godly man is, is very clear. As you look at the lives of these various biblical characters throughout the Old Testament and even the New, and you can glean certain lessons from them and you're quickly going to find out that being a, a, a real man, according to the Bible, has nothing to do with your physical strength. It has nothing to do with your athletic ability. You know, maybe if you go to the gym every day, well, then you're a real man. No. It has nothing to do even with your financial wealth. It's irrelevant. It has nothing to do with your social status. All those things appeal to our flesh, don't they? We, we, we want those things. We, we want people to look at us as successful and... Rather, it has everything to do with what? Personal integrity. It has everything to do with heartfelt obedience. And it has everything to do with daily, daily dependence upon the Lord. The moment you think, hey, I got this, that's when you're going to fall. <laughs> I guarantee it. Humility, faith, and love are the traits, I would say, of a real man. The kind of man who God favors. And the point is always the same. God is faithful to those who walk with him. It's always. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter how long you've known the Lord. But it's important to emphasize that the focus is really not on these men. When you study the lives of these men, they weren't standing in the, the limelight saying, yes, look at me, I'm a real man of faith. <laughs> I'm your example, follow me. They understood whatever successes they had, whatever triumphs they had, where does the credit go? To God. It goes to God. All the stories of faith that we can read throughout the scriptures, however valiant they were, are not intended to exalt these individuals. They're not. Rather, they are, what, witnesses to God's incredible faithfulness and his mighty work in their lives. He's the one 
to whom they look for help. He's the one to whom they look for deliverance. And guess what? He never failed them. Not once. All these accounts throughout Scripture of men who live by faith are most fundamentally testimonies to God's mighty power. He is the main character of every story. From the parting of the Red Sea to the crumbling of the, the, the walls of Jericho to the toppling of a giant known as Goliath, all those accounts we've learned about in Sunday school and Bible lessons, they feature men like Moses and Joshua and David, but ultimately and most, most importantly, they magnify the, the greatness of the glory of God and his power. And that's what our goal should be. Their lives were recorded to serve, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, as what? As an example for our instruction. That's why we study men like this. Hebrews 12, 1 says, so great a cloud of witnesses. In other words, they leave a, a legacy behind of their faithfulness that we can look to. Only as they depended upon God fully trusting in him and his wisdom and his power, were they able to accomplish anything of any lasting value. And the same applies to us. And so it's critically important that we remember that. So today I just want to spend a brief time here on a couple points dealing with the, the life of Abraham. And like I said, this is not in depth. This is just an overview. But it's become popular, I think, in our society for people to talk about faith. Would you agree? You talk about faith. People are interested. They kind of, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I'm a person of faith too. And they almost look at faith as some kind of mystical power or magical power. You know, and it's, 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 it's not so much a bad thing to be a person of faith. People kind of look up to that. It doesn't matter what the faith is to them. Um, whether the faith is placed in yourself <laughs> or in some mythological force I mean, how many times have you heard, oh, the power of love or, or the power of change? You hear those phrases and you think that, well, what's that mean? The point is always the same from the world. Believe hard enough and what? Your dreams can come true. Right? You can have your best day now. And, and to our postmodern culture, what people believe it's not at all important. It doesn't matter what you have faith in as long as you just have faith. The critical thing is that you believe something that you believe and that their faith, whatever is the object, as long as it makes you happy, that's fine. But biblical faith, when you look at biblical faith, when you look at the life of Abraham, it, it could not be more opposite from what the world tells us. It's defined by a confident trust and a full dependence on the only right object of faith which is what god himself that's what true faith is a confident trust and a full dependence on the only right object of faith itself and that's god himself see your faith is only as good as the object in which it's placed would you agree and for the, a lot of the secularists today, having faith in yourself is kind of extremely uh, limiting, you could say. It's, it's, it's discouraging. Faith based on that kind of fantasy is nothing more than fiction. But, 
But for the Christian, for those who believe in Christ, who's come to Christ, repented of their sins, and turned, turned to Him for salvation, faith in God is the key to facing any circumstances of life, anything. It comes down to our faith. God is infinitely powerful. He's infinitely wise. He's good. He's faithful. He's loving beyond measure. And to to depend on him as believers, it's it's kind of what Paul said in Romans 8. The end of Romans 8, he says, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will what? Be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a wonderful promise. And when we read about the the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11 and other texts, we learn that by faith they conquered kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness. They obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness they were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead, it says, in resurrection. See, through faith, the Old Testament saints accomplished some incredible things, but it was God who was doing it through them. God accomplished those incredible things through those who believed. The biblical heroes did not simply believe. They just didn't simply believe. They believed in what? They believed in God. And you have to qualify that today. Their faith was unseen, but it wasn't blind. God was the source. He was was the power. He was the strength. He was their focus and their object of faith. Their confident trust and full obedience was placed in Him. I mean, void of the right object, faith is, is nothing more than wishful thinking. It's really powerful, powerless and pitiful if it's not placed in the right thing. But faith placed in God, it's essential for salvation and the heart of the Christian life. Well, when we look at this man, Abraham, tells us of this man who walked by faith. One of the most foremost was a man here, Mesopotamia. While childless, he left his homeland to follow God. And as a result, he became the father of a great nation. He's probably one of the most famous and beloved characters in all of biblical history outside of Christ. In Genesis 11 to 25, we see his story. We're not going to read all this, obviously, but it's being recounted many times from rabbis to Sunday school class teachers. It's been the subject of songs and sermons and books and theological discussions, both the Jews and the Arabs look at him as their physical uh, ancestor. The New Testament declares him to be the spiritual father of all of us who believe. And the Lord certainly kept his promise to Abraham when he told him, I will make your name great. Would you agree? I mean, there's not a person on the face of the earth. If you ask, well, do you know who Abraham is? Most people would probably, oh, he's a guy in the Bible. And it's easy for us, 4,000-some years later, to take Abraham's life for granted, because we've heard all these stories ad nauseum, 
Yet unlike us, Abraham did not have the luxury of knowing exactly how his story would end. <laughs> we know that now. But he didn't have that. He simply had to trust God for the future, living by faith in the midst of all these daily trials that he was inundated with and temptations. As with all of us, there were times when Abraham did not trust the Lord as he should have. We're not lifting up Abraham as some perfection of faith. He wasn't perfect. Look at Genesis 20, for example. Yet, on the whole, you could say his life was characterized by a steadfast faith in God and a steadfast faith in God's word. Even when the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham went far beyond his own lifetime, he continued to trust and what? Obey, as the hymn says. And so when we look back from the New Testament into the life of Abraham, we look at somebody who is a model of faith. And as men, we should look to him and say, you know what? Yeah, I, I would like to emulate this. Well, quickly here, there's four lessons I want you to see that kind of teaches us a little bit about being a man of faith. First of all, men of faith submit to God's plan. The year was 2091 B.C. and Abraham, who was called Abram at the time, was 75 years old. Though born in Ur, his, his family had since moved to a town named Haran, located in northeastern Mesopotamia. Today it would be Iraq, known as Iraq, just east of the Euphrates River. Abraham was a first-generation believer. According to Joshua 24.2, he had grown up in a pagan family. Being from Ur, he had probably been raised as a worshiper of the, the moon god. And Abraham's father, Terah, may have been named after his, this deity since his name is derived from the Hebrew word for moon. So he doesn't come from a Christian background at all. Or even any kind of background that, that would honor God. Josephus recorded that Abraham was in fact a great astrom astronomer. And when the Lord saved him, Abraham realized that the sun, the moon, and the stars were not gods. But only created bodies operated according to God's grand design. And as an astronomer... The astonished stargazer, armed with a new understanding of the universe, you can only imagine, soon began to publicly denounce the astrologers who were probably his neighbors, but they did not want to listen. His faithful proclamation about the true God was met um, not with a welcome Party, but a, really a, a tumult of, of opposition, you might say. And in that context, that's where Abraham, God told Abraham to move his family to Canaan, promising to make a great nation of his descendants. What a, I mean, what a promise. I mean, that'd be glorious if God told you that. Yet for Abraham, you put yourself in his situation, it meant leaving everything that he knew behind including the home where he had settled, the place where his father died. And the call to leave was really a what? It was a test. It tested whether or not he was truly a believer in the Lord. I mean, it would have definitely been easier for him to stay in Heron. I mean, who here likes to move? I mean, even if you move into a new house, you, still, you don't like the process of moving. None of us do. And here things were familiar to him, and he was leaving all that. He had never been to Canaan. 
the land to which God commanded him to go. But Abraham, he didn't make any excuses, did he? He didn't complain. He didn't, why, why do I have to do this, Lord? No. Instead, he responded, the Bible tells us, in obedient faith. In Hebrews, it explains to us in verse 8 of chapter 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeying by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. I don't know about you, but as a man, I want to know where I'm going. When I get in the car, you know, whether it's, okay, wifey, let's go out to eat. We get in the car, and inevitably my question is, what do you want to eat? I don't know. What do you want to eat? It just doesn't go well from there on, right? It's like, just tell me the place we're going to go eat. I just want a place, a destination. We don't like to go drive around, especially today's gas prices, wandering through the streets of Redwood City looking for a place to eat. We want to have a place to go. It would have been hard to leave everything that was familiar to you to go to a place you didn't know where you were going. That makes absolutely no sense. Though his path was unknown, Abraham submitted to God's plan, confident that the Lord would send him exactly where he needed to be. His own preference might have been to stay in Haran, but he set that aside. He obeyed the Lord's command without hesitation, knowing that God's will was the best that God could possibly have for his life. He was willing to submit to God's plan. Sometimes we don't like God's plan. I'll be frank. God shares something, he's going to do something, he wants us to do something, and we're like, no, no, I don't think so. You're not going to use this person to do that. I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel good about this, Lord. You know, I'm not skilled in this, or whatever it might be. We can come up with a million excuses. And God says, no, this is what I have for you. And we have to be willing to submit to God's plan. Secondly, Abraham was a man of faith, and he, he, he rested in God's justice. He rested in God's justice. Because upon settling in the land of Canaan, Abraham, you read this in, in chapter 18 of Genesis, Abraham was, had his nephew Lot. They, they both left there, and he decided to part ways because their herds were getting too large to keep together. So they said, hey, you go graze there and pick a place, and, and we'll split up. And so Abraham graciously gave Lot his first choice where he would raise his flocks. And we know the story. Lot selected the most fertile land for himself, okay, uh, near the cities of what? Sodom and Gomorrah. I heard John MacArthur say the other day, if God spares the United States, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> That's very true. In this case, the, the greener grass was not necessarily the better choice. Sometimes people make choices based on the color of the grass. I, someone told me one time, as a farmer, he goes, there's a reason why that grass is greener over there on the other side of the fence. It's got a lot of fertilizer on it. To be specific, there's a lot of crap over there you don't want to deal with. So he eventually, Lot, moved there. And uh, in this case, he was bordered by these, these incredibly wicked people. And soon Lot came under their influence. He eventually settled in Sodom, a place that's so perverse, it's basically the synonym is debauchery for the, for the name of, of what it's called. Sodom's sin was so hateful to God that he 
determined to destroy it with fire from heaven. That's how bad it got. And when Abraham learned about this, what did he do? He interceded. He had relatives there. He was concerned. Not in defense of all the wickedness that was going on, but he, he wanted that, God, you know, you can spare these people. If there's any righteous people there, because I have relatives there, um, please spare them. And you know how the story goes. It was, after all, the home of Lot and his family. And Abraham, like others, he, he knew in the city, um, he, had, he had rescued Sodom's uh, inhabitants from an invading army in, in Genesis 14. After Abraham pleaded on the city's behalf, God assured him that, that there was even only ten righteous people there. He would not destroy it. And guess what? There wasn't. There wasn't even ten. According to Genesis 19, there was only one righteous man. And he was far from perfect. And though Lot was rescued, we know how it goes, along with his two daughters, God destroyed Sodom completely. And yet Abraham's intercession proved that he knew God to be a patient executioner. He knew God because he had spent time with God. He knew that God was one who wielded his anger carefully and only with just cause. Abraham wasn't pointing his finger at God saying, how dare you do this to these poor people? Abraham's confidence was in God's perfect justice and it's especially evident in Genesis 18 verse 25 where he said, far be it from you talking to God, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? He wasn't reproving God there. He was basically stating God's character. I know if you're going to destroy him, there's, there's got to be a reason, God. He knew the Lord's perfect character. And though Sodom would be destroyed, Adam, or I mean, uh, Abraham had no reason to doubt God's righteous goodness. I mean, a lot of people today in the church wrestle with implications of divine wrath. They think, if God is love, how could he punish all these people? How could he do that? And they've lifted the attribute of God's love above all the other, above his holiness, above his righteousness, above his justice. And the answer, basically, to their question is, as Abraham gives us the example, is ultimately found in God's righteous character. His wisdom is faultless. His judgments are pure. Knowing that God is gracious, Abraham fervently interceded for the city of Sodom. Knew that if there's any way that city is going to be spared, God would figure it out. Then he knew that God is holy and he's just. And he rested confidently in the fact that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. I don't know how many times I've said that at funerals that I've preached at when I didn't know the destiny of the person laying there in the casket or in the urn or whatever it is. And you've got to tell a, kind of give some reassurance to a, a, a family that just lost a loved one. I don't want to preach that person into heaven. I don't know what kind of life they live, but I don't want to condemn them to hell either. I don't know. And inevitably, I'll say, you know what? We place this individual's soul in the hands of an of a, of a almighty God who will do justly. 
Well, the third thing here, men of faith wait on God's timing. They not only submit to God's plan, rest in God's judgment, but they wait on God's timing. Genesis 17, God promised, we know this story well, Abraham, that he would have a son through his wife Sarah. But there was a little problem going on there, right? Both Sarah and Abraham were pretty old. Sarah had been barren her whole life. Nevertheless, God's promise was very clear. 17, 16, Genesis. I will bless her, speaking of Sarah, and indeed I will give you a son by her, then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. That's a pretty bold promise. Either God is God, and this is true, or he's a liar, and there is no God. In fact, when the Lord visited Abraham in chapter 18, he basically doubled down. He reiterated this guarantee. Verse 10, he says, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And they're probably looking at each other like, this this is interesting. This is going to happen. And you know Sarah's response when she heard what God said. It probably would have been the same response any of us would have had. She laughed in disbelief, wondering how she and Abraham could possibly have a child at their advanced age. Abraham, too, had initially responded with doubt-filled laughter. But Romans chapter 4, verse 19, indicates that his sense changed from doubt to confident hope. It says in verse 19 of Romans 4, Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, speaking of Abraham, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to God's promise, he did not waver in unbelief, but what? Grew strong in faith, it says, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Even when childbearing seemed physically impossible, Abraham chose to believe God's promises rather than focus on the scientific impossibilities of the situation. And guess what? God was faithful. Genesis 21. Through their newborn son, God would fulfill his promise to make Abraham a great nation. Numerous as the stars of the sky. I mean, that must have been a wonderful promise to Abraham, especially his background in astronomy, understanding the stars. And he and Sarah... As the story goes, finally had the baby boy that he had waited for for so long. And their son's name, Isaac, which means laughter, by the way. (laughs) Pointing to their initial disbelief in God's promise. God had surely assured Abraham years later. Hebrews 6, 14 and 15. So I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. See, sometimes we have to wait on God's timing. I know we want everything now. You know, we we have news instantaneously. It doesn't matter where it happens in the world. And, you know, we we watch a a sporting event and we know that we're going to see it in, you know, in a matter of so many minutes it's going to conclude. And, you know, everything's instant now. And we have a hard time being impatient, and especially when it comes to 
things that God is doing in our lives and his plan and his purpose for us. And we have to wait on his timing. My granddaughter's wanting to buy a horse. She's trying to buy a horse. She's an equestrian person. She wants to raise horses and sell them. And, and so, you know, I mentioned, hey, I'll help you out with something when you, when you get, find the horse. And she's found several horses. And every time the, the deal falls through. Oh, the horse is lame. We had it checked up in the vet. Can't get that horse. Wow, that's great. Well, I'm glad we didn't buy that one. <laughs> you know? And the next one comes along. You know, how, how, that looks like a good horse. All right, well. Well, it tripped the other day and did something to its leg, you know, so that horse is out. It's like, and it's kind of like, I'm thinking, okay, God has a purpose here. Maybe now's not the time to buy a horse. <laughs> Being that the economy is what it is and everything is happening, you know, who knows? But God knows. And it's even in little things like that, we have to be willing to wait. It doesn't matter whether we're looking for a new job, whether we're looking for a spouse, whether we're, you know, trying to settle into a church, whatever. We have to wait on, be willing to wait on God's timing. And the last thing here quickly is men of faith hope in God's provision. Just as Genesis 22, God tested Abraham's faith to see exactly where his hope had been placed. And it says in verse 2, 22, now take your son, your only son. It's all, I love God's you know, conversation here. Just reminding him, this is the only one you got, Abraham. You don't have any other. This is the only one that I gave him to. Take your son, your only son, by the way, whom you love. And if there's any miscommunication, his name is Isaac. And go to the region of Moriah. And Abraham's probably thinking, oh, here we go again on one, another one of these journeys. And then the sentence says, and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. I'm not going to tell you where it's at yet, because you can't handle that, but I'll tell you when you get there. I mean, I can't imagine what was going through this man of faith's mind. What is going on here, God? You give me this son. You say all these promises are going to be through him. We're not going to have any more. And when we thought there was no hope of having children, you gave us this boy. You promised to me about being a father of a great nation based on this one child. He's the descendant who's going to make this all possible. And now, wait a minute, you want me to sacrifice him? This, th there has to be a mistake here. This can't be right. Yet if Abraham had any doubts at all, they didn't last very long. Because it was his, his nature... Uh, God had already proven his faithfulness to, to Abraham in the birth of Isaac, so Abraham was asked to do the, what we would think is unthinkable. And what did he respond with? He responded with complete trust and without even complaining. How many times when God asks us to do something or points out an area we can serve in, boy, we, we complain and we whine and I don't have time for this. Now God said, okay, whatever. You're God, I'm not. You're the one in charge. You know what you're doing. And as Abraham and Isaac approached the place of sacrifice, you know the story, Isaac noticed that something was, was missing. You know, this wasn't a little baby he was taking up there. It was a teenage boy, and he's looking around. Hey, Dad, where's, you know, what, what are we going to sacrifice here? I know we're going for a sacrifice, but what's going on? 
And he asked his father, behold the fire, we got the fire, we got the wood. What are we going to burn up? Where's the lamb? And Abraham's faith-filled reply was anchored. It was anchored because he had right theology. He had a right understanding of who God was. That's why it's so critical to understand theology and to understand the attributes of God, to understand the characteristics of God. If you don't know that, you're going to be waffling in your faith until you go to meet the Lord. And he says in verses 7 and 8 of Genesis 22, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And just moments later, they reached the designated spot. Abraham tied up his son, <laughs> which even gives us an indication that, I mean, he could have run away, right? I mean, I don't know if I was Isaac, I'd be heading for the hills. Like, hey, what, what's going on here, pops? You know, but he didn't. Dad lost him some marbles here. Mom, where are you at? But tied him up, prepared to slay him. I mean, can you imagine? You have the knife over your son's body tied on this altar. And according to Hebrews eleven nineteen, it says, As he lifted the knife, Abraham considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. So he was very much fully intending to go through with the execution of his son, the sacrifice of his only son. He was so confident in God's promise that he reasoned, even if his son were to be killed, God would just bring him back from, from the dead. I mean, what a story that would have been. Talk about faith. God had promised to raise up this great nation through Isaac in Genesis 15, and Abraham knew that he would keep his word. Why? Because he knew his God. He knew his God. In verses 12 to 14 of Genesis 22, we read that God stopped Abraham from killing his son. Good thing he had good hearing and was able to react quickly. I mean, he's ready to plunge a knife into this boy's chest. Instead, provided a ram caught in the thicket. And that provision not only spared Isaac's life, but it's also a picture. And we've gone through this many times, a picture of the once-for-all provision of Christ on the cross for us, where we're saved by the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Tells us in verse 14 that Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Do you believe that God will provide for you? We live in hard times. We live in a very difficult economy right now. It's very easy to grow weary and just give up and say, ah, what's the use? His confidence, though, in God's promises never waned. He knew that the Lord would provide something. And through his actions, he proved his life was governed by both a God-centered focus and a, a God-grounded faith. Um, I think our study of Abraham would be incomplete if we didn't consider one crucial aspect of his life. In, in, Gen in Romans 4... Romans 4, the Apostle Paul used Abraham as an example to explain the heart of the gospel, namely, that salvation is what? It's by grace through faith, right? In Christ alone, it's not built on a basis of our works. 
being raised in the Roman Catholic Church, it was all about works. It was all about guilt. It was all about doing things to please God, to get a hug from God. You've got to do certain things. Abraham says he was justified by faith. And in Romans 4, 3 to 5, commenting on Genesis 15, 6, basically, Paul wrote, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but is what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. His right standing before God was a divine gift of grace. Credited to him through no effort or merit of his own. And that's what salvation is to us. He did not earn his own salvation. He simply believed God. And his faith was a gift of grace, as it is for every believer. That's what the New Testament says. For by grace we are saved through faith. And so I pray that as we understand what it means not just to be saved by faith, but to live by faith as Abraham did. To trust and obey. Not just sing that hymn, but to actually live it. And though Abraham's life was not perfect by any means, his life marked a definite, steadfast, confident belief in God and in his word. And he serves, I think, therefore, as a fitting example for us to, to emulate, to copy. And so, you know what, if you're struggling in your faith, ask yourselves, do you understand who you are in Christ? Do you, do you know who you are in Christ? Do you, do you have an identity in Christ, or do you have an identity crisis? You know, it's so important to understand who God is, His attributes, how He has saved us, what He saved us from. And once you understand that, and that becomes your foundation for living, the Christian life doesn't seem so overwhelming. It's still hard, it's still difficult. We're, we're called to suffer for Christ. But we do so with that hope, knowing that God will will fulfill his promises through us, no matter how much we struggle. That's why when we fail and we falter and we sin, the Bible says, you know what? We can go to him and we can confess that sin. Because we don't have to wait for him to take a ba baseball bat to us and say, oh, you bad Christian. No, he's not going to do that. He's going to say, hey, it's paid for. It's paid for. doesn't give us a license to sin. But it gives us really the freedom to live a life that honors Christ. Father, we thank you for this study of Abraham. Lord, we pray that you would help us as men to live our lives by faith, not by our own self-esteem or what other people think of us. Lord, that you would renew our effort to not only um, understand your word, but also to apply it and obey it, which is no easy task. It's difficult. That's why you've given us the Holy Spirit. That's why you've given us your word uh, in our own hands, in our own language that we can spend time in it and grow in our faith and understand more and more who you are and your character and your goodness and your promises for us. And so when the hard times do come, Lord, that we can rely knowing that God, I don't feel comfortable with this happening. I don't like being in this trial, but you know what it is already because you know everything. And your word says you won't allow something to happen to me that's not ultimately going to be for your purpose. And so even the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever may come, Lord, we, we want to maintain our trust in you. Keep us faithful as men to our wives, to our children, to our church, mostly to you as we live here on this 
sinful, sin-stained world uh, with temptation after temptation after temptation every moment of every day. But Lord, you have given us the answer for the victory that we can have in Christ and Christ alone. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.